I've met people who grew up in traumatic homes, who struggled to relate with people or struggled to control their emotions, and they were accused of having a demon. And that was very hurtful to the person, and they basically had to be brought up to the front of the church, tried to have the demon cast out, and they don't have a demon in them. They just don't know how to relate to people because they were raised in this really traumatic environment. Their emotions are all over the place. They just need healing. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, an Associate Licensed Counselor and Nationally Board Certified Counselor in the state of Alabama under the supervision of Cotina Stroud. The Real Talk 238 podcast has real conversations concerning taboo topics which people may find themselves struggling with that may not be discussed, especially in relation to the church. The purpose of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to bring awareness, hope, and encouragement. Having these conversations will shed light on the truth and break the lie of being the only one, being stuck, isolated, and alone because there is someone else who has gone through something similar. Topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and is intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast of The Real Talk 238. I'm excited to have our guest today. She is not only a colleague, but she's also a friend and I was really glad when when I asked her to be on the podcast when she agreed. Her name is Alyssa Jarvis. She's from Hampton, Virginia. She is a licensed clinical psychologist. Her husband's name is Devin, and they've been married four years. And as she describes him, he's her best friend. And he's the only person in her life that doesn't wear her out. And I'm kind of giggling because the very next question I had asked her was if she had children and she's got one on the way. So that's exciting. And I'm like, that little person will probably, your emotions will go all a hundred different ways. They attend Hampton Apostolic Church, and she's been in church all her life. She's a pastor's wife. In addition to being a psychologist, her husband is a church planner. And so they're doing a daughter work. She plays the piano for worship, which I don't think I knew that about you before today. And she's also a musician. She teaches Bible studies and disciples people. And she describes herself as being an introvert who really loves people. And she gets so much meaning from partnering with people and helping them grow. But she also values her quiet time and really learning to respect that about herself. She's grateful that Jesus put a love in her heart for him at such a young age and has never left her side. Fun fact about Alyssa is she loves ethnic food. And I think right now it's Asian. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited and I'm doing well. Doing well, getting through all the pregnancy sicknesses and all that good stuff. <laughs> yes, I have my energy back now. I'm actually at 20 week mark today. So I'm like at the halfway point. Awesome. So awesome. A lot of people, they don't know at least I know in, because I'm an associate licensed counselor. I did not go the same route 
partly because getting in a PhD for psychology, they'll have like 200 applicants and they only accept 12. It's very hard to get into. When did you know that God called you to become a psychologist? It was definitely a journey. Growing up, I didn't even know mental health existed. (laughs) As a kid, I had anxiety and I know that very clearly looking back, but my family wasn't really educated on anything regarding mental health. And I was homeschooled, so pretty sheltered growing up. But for my senior year of high school, I went off to school. My mom was trying to put me in a smaller setting, but putting me in school to help me prepare for college because I knew I wanted to go to college. But we didn't have money for private school, so she put me into a charter school. The second day of school, I was like, Mom, you know this is where they put all the kids that get kicked out of public school, right? (laughs) She was like, well, no. But we prayed about this and you're here. And so God had you here for a reason, which I know was a very hard thing for my mom to say because she had always done everything she could to protect me. I was in there for a year with kids who got in fights and did drugs and all kinds of stuff. That year, God really began to work on my heart. And I was like, wow, I didn't come from a perfect family. My parents divorced when I was like 10 or 11. Here you're in this charter school for troubled kids, which you are not one of them. Yeah. How old were you when you went there? Because I was homeschooled, I was like two years ahead of where I was supposed to be. And I liked learning. So it was a good combination for me. I know it doesn't work for everybody. I was 15 when I started my senior year of high school there. Now that's 15, those ages right there, adolescent ages. I mean, it's tough because you're discovering stuff about yourself and you're trying to figure out who your friends are and who you're connecting with and what your place in life is. And so how did you keep from being pulled into being influenced by the other kids and their behavior? How did you stay grounded? I think a combination of things. One is, I mean, my mom had really instilled values in me and I just really didn't see the appeal of drugs or sex or any of that stuff. I was in love with God. Part of the reason I wanted to go to school was like, Mom, how am I supposed to bring people to God if I'm never around people? I need to be around people to bring them to God. So that was part of my reason for wanting to go to school in the first place. Also, I think having that relationship with God and he created me as a very risk averse person. So like I wasn't about experimenting or trying things. It's a combination of all of that. And I did end up bringing a, a few of the people at the school to church. Two of them ended up getting baptized at some point. I guess I went there with a mission, kind of, and that was a part of it. But God also used it to open my eyes to how broken a lot of people are and just how broken a lot of families are. And like, I guess I've always been a decent listener, (laughs) never been much of a talker. I used to envy that because my stepdad could talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. I'm like, God, why can't I be like that? But I've learned over time, God's like, stop trying to be like other people. Like, I made you like you for a reason. You're a good listener for a reason. Like, you don't need to be a talker. And so I would just listen to the different kids and listen to them talk. And I was like, it makes sense why you use drugs. Like, your family's falling to pieces and you don't have anything to ground you. Like, even just my 15, 16-year-old self, I was already kind of conceptualizing people that way. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm thinking about that. It's kind of like, I don't know, I guess it's like, a natural innate ability, God-given ability. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like you can sit back and you listen to a conversation and you're watching their life and it's like you're putting these connections together and it's like, 
okay, I see why you're in drugs because this over here is happening. I'm like you. I'm very thankful for that because I don't think I could do my job without that skill. Yeah, I really do think it's a calling. At that point, I didn't know. Again, I didn't know anything about mental health. Like some of the the kids at school had been hospitalized or different things. They told me about their experiences, but I really didn't know anything. And so I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was like, thought about becoming a nurse, but I'm scared of germs and can't do blood. So I'm like, probably not the best option. And I was just thinking medical field because that's what I knew. I'm like, well, maybe I can be an eye doctor. I'm like, that sounds boring, incredibly boring. (laughs) And I was like, so I talked with, I think it was my Spanish teacher. I was talking to him about it. And he's like, well, why don't you become a social worker? And so I started researching what a social worker was. And I was like, yeah, like this sounds like a great fit. So there was a local university. I was able to stay at home. Got it preliminarily accepted into their social work program, accepted into the school. Basically, I had to complete so many prerequisites before I could actually apply for the program. So I went there, found out I hated social work. <laughs> it wasn't for me. <laughs> and I also experienced some discrimination because of my values. And one of the professors was like, no, we're not going to let you into the program because I had more conservative values. Like at that point, I was like, I don't think I want to do this. And the director of the program was like, no, like I'll step up to that for you. I don't want you leaving this program. Like, please stay. She basically was begging me to stay. I'm like, I'm tired of dealing with the discrimination from this other professor. And I'm just feeling like this isn't really a good fit for me anyways. All I had taken at that point was intro to psychology. That was it. But I loved my psychology professor and I was just intrigued. Like everything was so interesting. And I was like, I love this. Oh, that's funny. I hated my intro to psych class because it was, (laughs) you know, because it's just a very broad class. And it was at that point in life that I realized I didn't care about theories. Yeah. I think because like one of the theories that was brought up and I don't remember who it was by, but basically is, do we see color with rods or the cones in our eyes? And I'm just like, what does it matter? I could see color, but you know, for an eye doctor or for somebody who specializes in that area, of course, that's going to be important to him. But I'm just like, I don't really care. I think I I must have had a really good professor because he made things very applicable and practical. And I'm a very practical person. So I think if I had a very theoretical professor, I might not be a psychologist today. The university I went to in grad school is very liberal. I mean, yes, I live in the South and I went to school probably in the heart of the Bible Belt, but the university is very much open about a lot of different issues where conservative values don't always fit. For me, I know in the some of the classes I took, it was very challenging. It pushed a lot of my buttons simply because And I think, you know, God was also using that, like, what are you going to do with this? How is that going to impact you with people? And as far as like ministry goes, one of the things about being a Christian is a lot of Christians get accused of not loving people because of whatever they're into, whatever they're doing. You know, really, that shouldn't be the way it is. People should be loved for who they are, not for what they do. As you were going through school, with your conservative values, how did you work through that in the school you was at? Great question. I think I want to trace it back a little bit and then bring it back forward. So I remember the weekend before I started undergrad, I remember praying at church. I was at the altar and I had my face on the floor and I was just weeping. I was like, God, like, I feel you calling me 
to higher education. I was like, but I don't want to lose my soul in the process because I just would hear story after story after story of people right. going to college and like not making it out. I'm like, God, I want to go. I want to win souls. Like I want to be this person you called me to be, but I don't want to lose my soul in the process. And I remember just crying out to God about that. And I think that that attitude stuck with me as I went through school. I am not a contentious person. Like I'm very much the peacemaker. I hate tension. I hate conflict. Try to work through a lot of that to become a therapist. That was always my life thing. All the reflection papers. What do you need to work through? What do you need to work through? Like, Those are reflection papers. Let's uh, just, yeah, I called that no matter which class it was, let's like, for those who don't understand in these type of programs, whatever class you take, that's what you have to do a reflection paper on, but it's directed towards yourself. So you're basically pulling your guts out, examining all the, the flaws, what have you, that goes with that class, analyze it. Then you have to write about it and then shove your guts back inside and walk away and be okay. Much. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember just writing about having to overcome my fear of conflict. So like I wasn't uh, any type of that person that would speak up against things. I would just kind of stay quiet, mind my own business, like listen. And again, in hindsight, I'm really grateful for all those classes that challenged me. Like I took a philosophy class with a professor who was basically trying to turn everyone into being agnostic is what it felt like in the class. I think in hindsight, he was just trying to get us to think critically. I, I did push back against him some. And at the end of the semester, he's like, I really loved having you as a student in my class. Please come back. And that's when I realized I don't think he was actually trying to like convert me. I think he was just trying to get me to think. But I hated it. But in hindsight, I'm like, well, I feel like that me that strengthened my faith and helped me but also helped me be able to see from different perspectives. Like, even though my values didn't align with a lot of what was being taught, I can now better understand different perspectives. And I'm like, you know, the perspective kind of makes sense. Like, I may not agree, but I can see the logic behind it. And so it helps me connect with people in different ways other than just like, no, 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 no. It's like, no, let me hear you out. Let's have a dialogue. Right. <laughs> and let's talk about it. And even when I was experiencing the discrimination, it was a misunderstanding, I think, of the professor was making a very strong point in class against the Bible. I had, well, not against the Bible, but misinterpreting something in the Bible. I never spoke up in her class before, but it just bugged me so much. I'm like, this is the only perspective these everybody in the class is hearing. So I just raised my hand and kind of like expressed that there's other perspectives or something. And so because of that, this professor thought, I guess that I was a hateful, unloving person, <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to work with people who were different than me. And I was like, no, that's not true at all. Like, I love people. I understand why people do the things they do, at least to some extent. Like, I'm not judging anybody. I just don't like you telling <laughs> us in class that this is the one and only way to think about this when there's multiple ways to think about it. But I guess like being able to hold different perspectives has been very helpful in ministering to people without losing my own perspective in that process, without losing my own values, being able to hold on to my own values, but also sit with the discomfort of listening to someone else who doesn't agree and being able to love them in that process and not view them any differently. Yeah, because I think sometimes like this is what I have found that in this field, if you are a Christian and a therapist, no matter which area, it's like 
people don't expect the two to mix, and especially being apostolic. So every time I find somebody who their therapist and their apostolic is like, I try to make a connection with them because it's, I don't know, it's, it's just like, because you're both on the same page and you get it. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, like as far as church goes, when I was, I can remember back in the 80s, epilepsy, people who had seizures were viewed as demonic. And so, of course, we know that's not true because your brain's just firing a lot and it's getting a lot of extra activity that it, for somebody who doesn't have seizures, it's not doing that. As a professional and also as an apostolic, how do you maneuver through like when they say, oh, that person, they're the way they're behaving, they're acting, it's demonic. But yet you're over here thinking, no, that's not really what it is. You, you can see it. It's something more mental health wise. And how do you maneuver through that? What I try to always do first is validate their perspective because I, I get why it looks that way. <laughs> I get why people would come to that conclusion. So first I validate. And then I also acknowledge like, you know, there are spiritual aspects to things and I can't claim to know all of what's happening in the spiritual world. Right. At the same time, we also know that there's biological components to a lot of this. And I'll give, I'll just kind of give them some information about how it works genetically, how like different chemicals in our brains work, how all of this interacts, how stress kind of sometimes causes things to manifest that were in us genetically, but we're kind of holding it together until we're under this high level of stress. And then it's like our brain kind of starts jumping into the schizophrenia or the depression or whatever it was that was kind of already we were at risk for. Explaining that perspective, I found helps, especially after validating like your perspective isn't crazy. Like I get why you would think that way. And at the same time, like don't stop praying. <laughs> don't stop praying for your loved one. Even if it's not demonic, even if it is just biological, even if it is just mental, God can still heal. Don't stop praying. At the same time, get treatment. Yes. In the meantime, that doesn't mean there's a lack of faith there if you get treatment. We get treatment for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for all these different things. And that doesn't mean there's a lack of faith. We still pray. We still know that God can heal us. And sometimes God chooses to delay on that. Or sometimes he says, no, like I'm teaching you something through this process. I don't know what all's happening, but it's not a lack of faith to get help in the meantime while waiting for God's healing. Exactly. And, you know, you bring up a really good point especially with the whole view as far as church goes, what that lens was as far as mental health and psychology and back in the 80s and even like it, even into the early 90s or even late 90s, it was still very looked down upon. It didn't mesh. And I know there are some people out there that have wrote books on psychology, psychobabble. You're, <laughs> I wish everybody could see this right now, but you just put your like, oh, yes, like you're touching your forehead like, oh, my word. Yes, I know. <laughs> One of the things that I did as well, I felt such a calling to go into the mental health field. It's like I could not get away from it. And so I I prayed and I said, God, you know how there's been like this conflict between this psychological world versus the Christian world. From what I have been taught and told, it doesn't mesh together. It doesn't work. It's like a conflicting force. And so I've prayed and I asked God to show me, if this is what you want me to do, let me see where it lines up with the Bible. Because it's not going to work any other way if it misaligns. 
So of course, going through school, I was very fascinated. Some of the diagnoses that are out there, like schizophrenia, for example, people think, oh, that's demonic. No, it's not demonic. It is your brain is not functioning the way it needs to function. And people need medication to help. And then sometimes there's sicknesses that can mimic certain things. Syphilis. It's a sexually transmitted disease. And if it's left untreated, guess what? You're going to end up having delusions. You're going to end up having hallucinations. And it appears as schizophrenic. And then to go a step further, if you're not familiar with what all that does, from a Christian standpoint, that may appear as demonic. Yeah, it's just like the importance of being able to see from both sides of like, if we say it's just demonic, and we just keep treating it as demonic, one like I've met people who grew up in traumatic homes who struggled to relate with people or struggled to control their emotions and they were accused of having a demon. And that was very hurtful to the person and they basically had to be brought up to the front of the church, trying to have the demon cast out and they don't have a demon in them. They just don't know how to relate to people because they were raised in this really traumatic environment. Their emotions are all over the place. They just need healing. Exactly. You work with a lot of trauma. Yeah, my internship was at a veterans hospital. Yeah, I did mine at a psychiatric hospital. And and there was a lot of trauma there. And what people don't realize is like, when you've had trauma, sometimes your trauma responses are going to come out horrible. A person may lash out at somebody, they may get startled. Somebody with trauma history, especially really severe complex trauma, experiences in the present will actually be overran by whatever happened in the past really throws you off till you can work through those things i i totally agree and that affects so many different aspects like whether it's trauma or depression or anxiety or schizophrenia like it's it's not it doesn't just affect the mental health it can affect us spiritually it can affect us relationally and so just for example like i've worked with people who struggle to pray because they can't feel anything, because they're numb from the trauma that they've experienced, or they struggle to pray because they can't trust God, because everybody in their life that they ever trusted betrayed them or hurt them in some way. And so they're, they're like, logically, I know I can trust God, but emotionally, everything's screaming like, no, don't trust, because their brain is hardwired to keep them safe. And so they're having to learn how to undo that. It's important to recognize like trauma can affect those different things or like when we're leading worship and we're like, if you're not dancing and shouting, right, you must not really love God or you should have just stayed home, like stuff like that for a person who's severely depressed and it took everything that they could just to pull themselves out of bed and sit on the pew is discouraging yes. because they had to work 20 times harder to get to church than anybody else that day. And it's like... To me, I see it like as the story of the widow's might, like sitting on the pew for that person may be worth more than all the different offerings and sacrifices that the rich people give. We can't condemn people for their lack of response or for their struggles because we don't know what they've been through and what they're working through to try to get to the point 
where we think that they quote unquote should be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Something else that I was thinking about too, and I love talking about trauma. You actually may have to come back and we, we, <laughs> we like tackle different mental health issues, especially in the area of trauma. But like one, another area too, that is thinking about trauma. Like I work with I've worked with a lot of individuals that have been diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. Years ago, it was called multiple personality. And this is one of those diagnoses that people think, oh, this is demonic. It is not demonic. It is definitely a trauma response. And that's how that person survived. A lot of people aren't going to understand that, especially when they come into church. Maybe you don't know why that person is acting the way they're doing that. But something that I've had to tell people, you know, love that person. If they're taking the right steps, they're getting help, therapy, they're getting the proper treatment. And that's very important as far as mental health goes with any diagnosis, because if you're getting treatment for an eating disorder, but yet you're over here with this other disorder, it's not going to be effective. At worst, it may even cause more damage. It's really important to get the proper treatment and care. So I tell people, love that person pray for them. They're definitely going to need it and they will get better. They're not going to stay like this forever. It just takes a while. It takes sometimes a long while. How do you approach things like that? Because, you know, again, a lot of people don't understand dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, there was actually one of the elders in my church. He's an associate missionary. He's worked with a lot of different cultures. He grew up in another country. He's been in the military. He's had a lot of different experiences and he's super anointed. God uses him powerfully and he's cast out lots of demons like in his day. But he's like, never assume someone's demonic. Until that demon manifests, don't assume they're demonic. It's not helpful. And I really appreciate that. Yes. Let's not assume that everything we don't understand is divine. Yes. Or it's a spiritual attack. Yeah. And which, even if it is, like, never hurts to pray. Right. Keep praying. But let's not rule out everything else automatically. Let's try to get some help. And kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier with the psychobabble books, what I find frustrating, and again, I understand. <laughs> Both can exist at the same time. I can be frustrated and understand. But I think a lot of ministers, a lot of people in ministry assume that psychology is still what it was in like the 1940s and 50s, like weirdly analyzing people. Yeah, the Freudian. Yeah, Freudian. And so I read books like that are written modernly and they're describing psychology that way. And I'm like, I don't know anybody who practices like that. Like, I think... Like I understand because even back in Freud's time, psychology was kind of anti-religion. So I understand why Christianity became anti-psychology and it became this battle. But thankfully, and I'm very grateful that over time, the field of mental health has grown to appreciate the importance of the spiritual world and of religion. Again, not everybody. It's still important to find a therapist who does appreciate that. But for the most part, is much more appreciative and understanding. And I think it's important for those of us who are trained in mental health just to provide gently, but an understanding way, provide education about what psychology actually is and what treatment looks like and how it helps. Because I think a lot of people just aren't aware of what therapy actually looks like nowadays. Like, for example, I had someone who was referred to me by a pastor for a kid, and they're like, 
you know, don't let your kid alone in the room with the therapist, make sure you stay in there the whole time. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I appreciate the caution. And I respected that for a little bit. because I don't want to go against the pastor or anything, but over time and just providing some education on what therapy looks like. I know everybody involved was a lot more comforted of what the process was and what it looks like. I'm like, okay, this isn't something I have to be afraid of. This is a space for my kids to be able to work through some things that they're struggling with and for the family to be able to get some help. Just really, again, understanding why there is hesitancy and why there is fear about what psychology is and mental health treatment looks like, and also just providing education how it helps. Yes. And, you know, I mean, and too, another part of like therapy and psychology, there is humanistic views in it. There, and there is, and I'm talking about the people that came up with these concepts and these different theoretical approaches. And like you said, unless you're strictly like a Jungian therapist or a Freudian therapist, nobody's going to follow completely down that line of path, that line of theoretical training. Me personally, I use the integrative approach. Yes, the integrative. That's that fancy word I was looking for. Just really like figuring out where the person's at, what they need and meeting them there instead of like coming in with all of our preconceived notions of how to fix somebody and like putting everybody into the same box. Yes. And you know, that also makes me think, and I don't know what your opinion is on this. Like I am not, uh, there's something out there called CBT or DBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. DBT was a branch off of CBT. And to me, CBT and DBT is kind of like, I always think of it like the one size fix all approach. And with people, especially working with trauma, it's not a one-size-fix-all approach. And something I've learned about, and again, this may be another conversation for another day, but with when you have trauma, especially at a very young age, what happens, your primary, what they call the reptilian part of your brain, which is your basic... Like basically keeps your body alive and functioning. The survival skills, that is very much large. And the, your logical part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, all that area is not as widely developed when it comes to CBT and even DBT. Those are more for people who where the prefrontal cortex is mature and it's able to do those logical responses where in your limbic system, which is part of the reptilian part of your brain, those survival skills is very overemphasized. Yeah, it's like it. It kicks into gear when it doesn't always need to. And so it's hard to, it's hard for someone who's been through a lot of trauma to be able to pause and like, okay, let me logically think through this situation. It's like, no, it's just like, we need to react right now because there is danger. Like somebody's going to get hurt. Like we just need to either run out of here. We need to become aggressive and fight, or we're just going to freeze and like, wait for it to pass over. Like, one of those three responses, but trying to just pause and think through a situation typically doesn't really happen. <laughs> right. Right. It's kind of like you have to also too with it, with people who have trauma, you know, a lot of times when they come to therapy, they're not even coming in for the trauma. They're usually coming in for whatever is going on in that moment, but they don't understand 
I don't know why I keep doing this. I don't know why I keep cutting. I don't know why I keep drinking. I don't know why, why my spouses gets on my nerve. And if you, and then they get in there and you start going through their history and it's like the, then you make those connections. Like we talked about earlier. Oh, and sometimes I'll ask them, I said, just out of curiosity, did this stuff happen when you was a kid? And it's like the light bulb comes on. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, going, wow. How about that? Yeah. So being able to like be compassionate to a per- like to yourself and to one another, but just that self-compassion of I'm not crazy. Like it makes sense why my brain responds in this way. And my brain had to respond in this way to keep me safe at one point in time. So how, how do I retrain my brain to recognize that I'm safe and I don't need to be reacting this way all the time? How do you deal with people that, have been involved in minister, they've been hurt by ministry, particularly those that are in ministry, yet they're being hurt by ministry. It's, I try to walk a fine line there because in treatment and in therapy, I never ever want to bash someone's spiritual leaders. And I never want to encourage someone to not submit to ministry. At the same time, I really try to help people understand what healthy boundaries look like, what healthy relationships look like, and to have conversations. <laughs> yes. When you say like submit to ministry, okay, because I know there are going to be some people that are think like, yeah, uh, that pastor or that minister has got me under their thumb. How do you explain to them what submission to ministry looks like? Because not everybody understands what that looks like, or they have a very obscured view of what that looks like. It, it, it is a very challenging concept to grasp. That's something that I've had to wrestle with a lot too over time of like, okay, what does submission look like? Whether it's to ministry or like in a marriage or in just relationships generally, because growing up, I had this idea of submission as you don't speak, you don't say anything, you just do everything they tell you to do. And there was a season in my life where I just wanted to like (laughs) rebel against all of that. I'm like, no, I hate this. Like, I don't want my marriage to look like that. I don't want my future to look like that. But at the same time, like I couldn't get away from like scripture and the word where it's like, okay, well, submission is an important thing. So it's like, what does that look like? What I've come to learn is submission really comes from a place of honoring the people God's put in different positions, whether it's a pastor or whoever. It's recognizing, okay, God puts people in positions of authority, but people still have free will. So even like once they're in that position of authority that God put them in, they may or may not continue to walk in the way that God's called them to walk. And so they may overuse their power. They may do things that are really hurtful for the people that are under them because they're not actually still following God the way that they should. And that's when it gets tricky. It's like, okay, am I still supposed to submit to this person? Like, am I supposed to leave? Like what's supposed to happen? And that's, it's such a fine line. It's such a delicate balance because it, it does take a lot of prayer and a lot of soul searching And also a lot of honest conversations, because a lot of times people have that idea of I'm just supposed to do whatever they tell me to do, never push back, never communicate how I feel. And that's not healthy. Like, it's important to be able to sit down with your leaders and be able to have a conversation. Again, not 
in a disrespectful or really questioning kind of way, but just like, hey, like, this is really bothering me. Can you help me understand? Exactly. Because that person in leadership may have miscommunicated it or may have not communicated it clearly. And then again, the person receiving the information may have not understood it clearly or maybe understood it in the way the person in leadership was explaining, you know, was expressing it. Exactly. So yeah, communication, I think is so key. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you're not submitting. (laughs) Like it's okay. And what I've learned in marriage too, it's honestly, there was a period of time I was terrified of becoming, of getting married. I was like, I'm going to be single my whole life. Like I don't want to submit like, nope. (laughs) And thankfully God brought someone into my life who is a great example of what a husband should be. And has really taught me like the ideal of what this whole like dynamic looks like when the husband's loving the wife the way Christ loves the church, then it's easy to submit. Like, it's like, I want to follow your leadership and giving me the opportunity to speak my mind, asking me, like, what do you think about this? How do you think? And considering my opinion, like, it's not that I'm this doormat at all. It's we're a team, but somebody has to be able to take the lead on things. Like, we can't both be butting heads all the time. It's not going to work. Yes. And that's a great point you make up. You know, it's it's not being a doormat. You know, being under submission, that is not about being a doormat. God never expected us to be a doormat, you know, because that's miserable. If you're living in any type of relationship where you are made to be the doormat, that is not, that is a, like you said, it's an unhealthy boundary. It's a definitely a imbalance of power and it's nobody should have to live that way. I mean, Jesus, he submitted himself. And I think about like when he, my word, he could have stopped everything. You know, he didn't have to, he could have stopped having to die on a cross or being beaten or any of that stuff. But he submitted himself because he knew what the end result was going to be. He knew that Yes, it was painful. And no, that does not mean that people are supposed to be beat. It happens, yes. He willingly submitted himself to people that he could have so easily... (laughs) I always think of like these Star Wars things going off in my head, like, oh, Jesus could have just went zap and they were done. But he didn't do that because he he saw the ultimate end of it, which was people were going to come in the church and people were going to be hurt and people were going to be wounded. And he related so much to that, that he also said, hey, I did this for you so you can be healed. And so you can, so you can find a better way of life because you don't have to live that way. And I think that's powerful. And like, oh, we know Jesus was God, but operating in his human flesh, like he still had to submit to God's larger will and his larger purpose. And we as humans and not having the divine aspect of ourselves can't always see so far into the future and see that big plan. We're like, okay, I'm following, but I don't see where this is going. And sometimes we do have to trust. Like there's been times where my leadership has made decisions that I had to follow that I didn't agree with. And ultimately I'm like, okay, you know, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't the end of the world. But I was angry and I had to talk to God about it and be like, okay, God, I'm really angry. I don't want to do this. I know that this is the person you put in leadership over my life and you're helping them to see something larger than what I could see right now. Help me (laughs) to trust you in this process and to follow. And ultimately, everything worked out fine. And there's going to be times where our leaders make the wrong decisions, too. 
still have to follow in those moments too. Again, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to express our concerns. But once that decision's been made, it's not our position anymore to keep like pushing and pestering and pushing and pestering. It's like, no, God put these people in authority over our lives. And if they make the wrong decision, that's not on us. God's holding them accountable for that, not us. And we're going to be blessed for following their lead, even if it was a wrong decision. Now it's different if there's a pattern after pattern after pattern, and they're like no longer even following the word of God anymore, or no longer even like being obedient to God, then we don't want to follow them into sin or anything like that. That's a different scenario. And I agree with you, you know, not everything our leadership says are we going to agree with. I mean, come on, we're, we're human beings. I don't agree 100% with my husband and some of the stuff he does, but it's like, you know, how do I handle that? And so the same thing with ministry. I may not agree 100% with my pastor. The things I, I question is like, okay, when he makes these decisions, is he being abusive in his decision making? Is he negatively making examples out of people in front of the whole church, you know, like during service? Does he, is he uh, not maybe, maybe not physically abusive, you know, but is he emotionally abusive to people in this decision making? Is he excluding people based on something that doesn't align with the Bible? You know, those sort of things. And it's like, you know, I weigh all that out. And, you know, even in my own personal experience, I went through a very negative situation under a pastor. It was not a healthy, it was definitely not a healthy situation. And I definitely prayed about it. And when you're in situations like that, you know, really, really pray because you want to be in alignment, most of all with God and really, really pray. And there will be a time you know, if your life is in danger, by means, by all means, get out of there. You know, I don't think God's going to beat you over the head if you decide to get out of there because it's putting you in so much danger. But if you can allow time and space, pray about it, reach out to healthy friendships, healthy people you can confide in and say, hey, I need I need prayer about this. I'm really in a conflict. It's a conflicting situation and I, I don't quite know what to do because it's never healthy to make a rash decision if your life is not in danger. Sometimes it's just God works it out. You know, he will definitely work it out when you're like, when you're praying about it, you know, fasting about it and, you know, reaching out to just a few people that, you know, you can confide in and you know, they'll help you pray. It's something that needs to be said and needs to be shared. And the whole idea of submission, I know is something that a lot of a lot of people, especially in our modern culture, like really like react negatively to. And so understanding it in its proper context and what it actually is supposed to look like, I think is, is very helpful, as well as the power of it when it's working the way it's supposed to. And then too, if you have somebody who was, say they had a father who was abusive, you know, as an adult, that person may really struggle with with leadership that is in authority. In, in situations like that, it's really challenging your old thoughts because this is what you knew compared to, okay, is he doing this? Is he acting like my dad? Is he, you know, those sort of things. So it's kind of like you're trying to find that balance. And, and two, if you have come out of a situation, you know, there may be people that come out of situations like that and go into a church and it's like, God can be using the things from the past to help grow you and let you realize 
it's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's so, you know, sometimes that's the case as well. And I find too, that it's, it's hard to heal from all of that until you're in a healthy relationships with people. Once you're in healthy relationships, once you see what healthy leadership looks like, yes, things are still going to trigger those past fears and those reactions and that desire to run or to fight (laughs) or to freeze up, like that's still going to happen. But when you're in that healthy space and working with a therapist who can help you sort through a lot of that, it, it can be very powerful. and that healing process can really be sped up. One other area as that I'm also passionate about is trauma-informed care. And I know you have an interest in it as well. Like as far as churches go, how could trauma, you know, being trauma-informed, how could that be implemented in churches? I think first of all, just having a basic knowledge of what trauma responses can look like in people and taking the time to listen to people's stories and to acknowledge that their emotions are valid, even if they don't fit the situation and they don't seem logical to you, they're they're still valid. And there's a reason why people feel the way they do. So taking the time to listen to people's stories, acknowledge their emotions, and then try to help them move forward and develop a better understanding spiritually. There's a level of perfection that we're all striving towards. And some of us are closer to that level than others. But again, we all have different starting points. We all have different things that we're struggling with and things that may speed up or slow down that process and not shaming people for not growing as quickly as others. Yes, that's a great point. And another thing too is like what one person's struggle may not be another person's struggle and not, you know, not shaming the first person because they, you know, they, they struggle with that. Well, you know, that's, that's horrible. If you've ever been shamed by somebody, well, I didn't go through that. I didn't have issues with that. You know, that's shaming. Yeah. And another thing too, is I've, I've known people who are in ministry positions who they went through trauma themselves and they responded in one way. And so then they meet other people who've been through trauma and they expect everyone to respond the same way they did. And it's like, no, like everyone is so unique and their response to trauma is so unique. And so we can't put people in a box and expect everyone to respond the same way for everyone to recover at the same pace. We all have different levels of resiliency. We all have different personalities. We all have different levels of complexity to the trauma. So really just being willing to sit with people where they're at and helping them along, even if the process is slow being patient and also giving praise when you see people grow like even if it's just the smallest bit of growth acknowledging it and like encouraging them because they're probably worked really hard to get that one little baby step of growth and so hearing that encouragement and that acknowledgement will do wonders in helping them stick it out and continue to work on their spiritual growth and development another thing too i was thinking about is if you know somebody who's struggling, who they've, and, and you're like, oh my word, why can't they get over this? Why can't they get past this? Another great thing to do is obviously you, you know, 
you want to see people grow and you want to see people like as far as the church goes, you want to see people that come in, grow and and get healthy and strive for that place instead of focusing on those. Why do they keep doing that? Celebrate their accomplishments. So say somebody comes in and they struggle with smoking. They're like three packs a day smoker. Maybe they come up to you and they're like, please pray for me that I can stop smoking. So if they come to you and say, hey, guess what? I've only smoked one pack today. That's a celebration. Now, does it mean that they're, they've arrived, they've got to that place yet? No, but it's, it's like, hey, that's awesome. You're doing it. You know, and that is so important as well. You know, celebrate those those achievements. I don't care how small they seem or how insignificant they seem. Celebrate them because that really does help support the person who's working through those struggles. And also just, I think another big piece is respecting people's boundaries. So like if someone, if like say you're in a pastoral meeting with someone and all of a sudden they shut down. Like, don't keep poking at them, poking at them, poking at them. Recognize, okay, maybe they're having a trauma reaction. Or vice versa, if they all of a sudden become aggressive and it seems like it's out of nowhere, don't become, again, I would hope pastors aren't becoming aggressive, but don't, like, raise your voice and get really passionately back. Like, stay calm, recognize, okay, maybe there's something I said that triggered something. There's no way I would have known that, but it's happening. So let me remain calm in either direction. And let them have a moment and let them be able to come back to their baseline. And then we can have a conversation because if someone has been triggered and they're either shut down or they're become escalated or elevated, they're not going to be able to have a logical conversation in those moments. Because again, that frontal part of their brain, that's the thinking part is shut down and they're reacting from emotion. So validate their emotion. You don't have to validate you don't have to be agreement with what they're saying, but acknowledge that this emotion they're having is very real. Let them come back down to baseline and then you can have a conversation working through the more logical piece. And I think that's really important too, as far as being trauma informed. When should a pastor suggest or recommend that a member of their church seek out counseling? Great question. I don't know if there's a one size fits all answer for this, but I guess like if you're recognizing like, you know, I think that this person might be dealing with a higher level of depression than I'm used to counseling, or this person seems to be, I don't understand why this person's acting the way that they are. Or if you're starting to feel like, okay, maybe this isn't, we're not just working on spiritual stuff anymore. Like there's something more going on here. Then I think that's a great time to refer out to them talking to a counselor. I mean, I'm very much under, <laughs> under the impression that everybody can benefit from counseling. So I'm just like, yeah, send everybody to counseling. <laughs> But I know that's not a practical answer, but definitely like if you're recognizing, you know, this is a little more than I'm trained to handle, then don't hesitate to send someone to counseling and even validate because a lot of times people will go to their pastor before they're willing to go to see a counselor, like because there's so much stigma about mental health. So I think it's also important for ministers to destigmatize that a bit. Like even if the minister has been to counseling before, disclosing that can be really helpful. Like, hey, there was a period where I went to counseling. 
three was really helpful. Or there was somebody in my family I know that went to counseling, even if you have to like bring in someone else's testimony anonymously, but like bring in their testimony to help destigmatize that. Just letting them know like, hey, this doesn't mean that you're failing spiritually or that you're too challenging for me. It's just, I'm trained in the spiritual piece. I think that you could benefit from talking with someone who's trained in the mental health piece as well. And we all work together as a team. That made me think when I was living in my 20s and I went to this church and and remember I said as far back then, you know, therapy was getting counseling. That was a stigma. especially in the church, it wasn't meshed together. So I'll never forget, I was at this church and the pastor of that church, he openly said that he dealt with depression. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, that it really, it, it made me realize that even pastors go through struggles, even pastors deal with depression or anxiety or any of that stuff. And, you know, and yeah, he took medication for it. He was like, you know, sometimes that's what you have to do. I also think too, and I don't know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm thinking you probably agree with this, but I may be wrong. I, I was thinking too, you know, it's really important for a pastor of a church to reach out to, not for their own therapy, but to reach out to therapists in their area that they can feel confident to suggest that members of their church go to. That is so important. Yeah, just doing that research ahead of time. Like a lot of therapists would be happy to do a consultation with a pastor and answer any questions that a pastor might have about their therapy style or like what if one of my church members came to you with this issue and just making sure that you feel comfortable with that therapist approach and that you can trust sending your members to them. I think that's totally fine. And some therapists may be like, I've never done this before, but sure. Like, I don't know how many pastors actually do that, but I think that would be an amazing thing to do, to have a list of resources of people that you've already networked with and that you could trust. I know in my state, obviously there's lots of therapists, just like in your state. I was at a ladies conference back in March the district superintendent and the district secretary, I went up to them both. I felt God lead me. Hey, don't you think it's time to go talk to them? Let you know, let them know what you're doing. I was like, are you sure God? And I went to them both and I, I told them who I was and that I was a therapist here in Alabama. And they were like, we had no idea. We had no idea. We'd been referring people elsewhere. And if we had known you was here, we would have been sending them your way. You know, so that's a lot of them don't know that there's therapists out there. And too, like you said, the consultation is so important simply because therapists are just like people. They have different belief system. They have different points of views. And it may not always align with what your belief system is or what your point of view is. Maybe there's a therapist that for the most part, it pretty well aligns, but maybe there's just a few things that are, is that acceptable? Can you deal with that type sort of thing? And also just letting in the other direction too. Like if you feel like a therapist is a fairly good fit, but they're not apostolic, like just giving them some brief education on what we believe. This is normal. So if you hear people talking about this, like this isn't something to pathologize like this is normal and just helping the therapist giving them it's like a cultural education for the therapist letting them understand like this is this culture and like these things are normal and if you ever have questions about anything feel free to consult with me as well yes because you know that's building one that's building relationship that's building resources because also maybe that person maybe that therapist has a 
client come in or a patient come in and they're really struggling and the topic of spirituality comes up and maybe the therapist is not, one, they may not be comfortable talking about spirituality and that's okay because not every therapist is, you know, or maybe the client saying, you know, I'm really dealing with this spiritual aspect, but I don't feel comfortable talking to you as a therapist. Well, in that case, the therapist said, hey, I know somebody. They could provide that information to that pastor that would be helpful. It's kind of a, it's a good relationship to have because a therapist is not, has it all together. I know some of, some of us as therapists might think we do, but we don't. <laughs> we, we have, we have flaws, <laughs> but you know, also it builds that relationship and community and and two, as a for a pastor, you just never know what might come out in the end as far as for that therapist. I mean, my goodness, I worked, I'll, I'll never forget this. I worked with a person. Well, I ended up building relationship with her psychiatrist of all people. And as time went on, you know, we built friendship, what have you, me and the psychiatrist. And then later on, she got baptized in Jesus name. You know, you absolutely never know. If you feel God calling you into a profession or into a direction, like definitely seek his face, seek spiritual counsel, but your your secular profession and your education and your ministry don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like I'm just blown away at how God has allowed me to use my education in my ministry and has made my ministry even more effective. Like I remember long periods of time where I was frustrated. I'm like, God, like, I don't feel like there's anyone in ministry that I can like aspire to be like, like, I don't feel like I'm called to any of those things. And I was frustrated because I just had this idea of, I want the spiritual mentor who can help make me like them, be like them. And I felt God kind of rebuked me. I'm like, stop trying to be like all these other people. Like I made you uniquely you and just be you. And so just learning how to embrace who's God's made me it's a lot of uncertainty of like, I don't know where I'm going to end up or what I'm doing, but I'm following God's lead. And I'm really grateful that I did that in pursuing education. I did that in my move to Virginia and I did that in different areas. And I just seen how God used that. And so even if you're not feeling called to mental health field, you're called to business or called to marketing or whatever, like God can really use that for ministry as well. And it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. So just following God's leading. And if you feel called to mental health, awesome, because we need tons more apostolic counselors. Just, I love how God, God God's the one who calls us and puts passions in our hearts a lot of the time. And so when we realize it comes from God, like that it's amazing. And that's really a good point you bring up because it made me think of before I got very serious about going to school to be a therapist, I was actually going to school for a period of time for medical front office. I was like you, I I knew I was going to do something medical or, or helping professional somewhere along that line. Went to do this medical front office training school for that. And I'll never forget the nurse. Now I don't have a stomach to do medical. And that's a whole story for why I got out of that. I'll say that because it's a little bit, there's some embarrassment in there. (laughs) When God gave me the divine revelation, why I don't need to do this. The nurse, there was a nurse who was teaching the class. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. She said, it doesn't matter She says, if you spend all this time and energy going to school, and especially if you go into like nursing school, nursing school's hard, by the way. 
But if you've spent all that time and energy and money going to school to do this profession, and in that case, it was nursing, and you pass all your boards, and you then you get in the field, you're now a nurse, and two weeks later, you realize how much you hate it, that was really a waste of time and energy. And she continues, she says, you know, she says, whatever you feel passionate about, do it. If you feel to work at Walmart, being a cashier or being stalker, and your passion, that's what you feel you need to be doing it, then do it. Don't don't feel bad about it. If you feel uh, led to work at, at a fast food restaurant, then that's what you do. Because otherwise, you're going to be miserable in these this profession that, you know, that you worked so hard. Why did I even do this? And so no matter, and I think it goes back to the scripture, no matter what you what you find your hands to do, do it with all your heart. That you made me think of that. And so I have truly lived by that. Did my training for medical front office, was it a waste? Absolutely not. I use that stuff. And I believe me, I complained there for a while. Like, God, I'll never use this stuff again. Oh, my word, I use it all the time. It's coming so handy. And yeah, so whatever you, you've been trained to do, even if you're not doing it like you in originally anticipated doing it, God can use that and he can like actually mesh it together and it works. And who knows, maybe God did direct you that path. It wasn't for the ultimate end, but maybe he directed you for that path just so you can specifically get that training. Now, mind you, yeah, it cost a lot, but <laughs> but it was a learning, it was a process. You learned something from it. You gained training from it. And yeah, you can take that and apply it to future and experience. And it kind of like, you know, it really does form, form us, form our personality and whatever, you know, everything we've been through, every, you know, teaching experiences, whatever, God will not waste. It's not a waste. God will use it. Yes, 100%. So as we wrap up, I want you to speak to that person that, you know, maybe struggling like with their career or with their, you know, they're, maybe they're at a, a crossroad in life or maybe they're in church and they're dealing with mental health issues and they just don't know where to turn. And I just got goosebumps when I said that, you know, maybe they don't know where to turn or who to trust. You know, talk to that person. Yeah. It's okay that you're struggling. It's okay that you're dealing with things that feel over your head. That doesn't mean that you're failing as a Christian or that you're a bad Christian. And it's okay to get help, to find someone that you do trust, whether it's a a leader at your church or whether it's going out and finding a professional counselor, but finding someone that you do trust and that you are able to be real with about your struggles. Even in those struggles, God can use that to help develop and grow you. And even if it feels like you're not making ground spiritually, you probably are. It's just harder to see right now. But definitely don't hesitate to reach out for help. To the one who's struggling with your career and decisions, start small. Find something small you're passionate with, whether it's photography or a hobby or something like find something small that you're passionate and build yourself in that area and continue to see where God will take that. Because I really do believe that when we're faithful in the small things, he'll make us roll over much. So whatever those things are that you're passionate about, whatever responsibilities you have now, do it to the best of your ability and God will grow that. He'll give you direction and show you where to go next. Some wise words of wisdom there. 
And I tell you, I have like ultimately enjoyed this interview. It's been great conversation. I hope this is not the last one. I really enjoyed this interview and maybe in a future time, come back on and we'll talk, we'll talk some more about mental health or trauma because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about it. And one last thing, everybody, if you are looking for no matter what state you're in, there is a group, me and Alyssa both belong to it. And I, that's how we actually met. It's called the Center for Apostolic Counseling. They are on the web. All you got to do is Google them. It's not every state, but they do have apostolics in different states all across America. And so that is definitely a resource that you can use. And if anybody out there knows an apostolic therapist, tell them about Center for Apostolic Counseling, because that is more resources for people to reach out to that has available. And it's it's so helpful. I, I think all of us have actually had people that have found us just through that site. You know, it's a great resource for a church. It's just something out there that will benefit. Thank you again, Alyssa, for being on the podcast. I so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I definitely enjoyed it as well. I feel uplifted, encouraged from our conversation. So until next time, everybody have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.